listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Oh, thank you, sir. Enjoy that drink. Oh, hey, Chris. Tony, you know who that was? That's the OG. Oh, come on, bro. I know who the OG is. And I'm not even in cybersecurity. He's the man. What's up, fellas? Hey, Tony. I'll take my usual. Double makers on the rocks, splash of grenadine. Ah, you got it, Mike. Oh, hey, Mike. The OG is in the building. Oh, really? That's awesome. Shouldn't he be out on his book tour? Oh, we're doing his book tour. We're on it. Tone, I need you to hook me up with a quick and easy drink. I got to go catch this guy before we start signing books. Bro, I got you. But you just can't approach this OG without a solid drink in your hand. Therefore, we're going to pair you up with the Godfather. You just combine two ounces of American whiskey, one ounce of omelet liqueur, put an old-fashioned glass with some ice, stir it, bada-bing. Thanks, my man. Hey, Mike, let's take a walk. This could get interesting. I'm in, dude. I'm going to have him sign a copy of my book that I bought. I keep it on me at all times. It's my GPS for success. All right, fellas. We'll see you all next round. Back again with my special co-host, Mike Elgins. What's up, Mike? Chris, how can I miss another Barco podcast? This stuff is awesome. Yes, sir. And I'm also here with Dr. Eric Cole, the founder of Secure Anchor, a cybersecurity firm that works with companies to make the internet a safer place to do business. He's also written several books on cybersecurity and is the go-to expert for large media outlets such as CNN, Fox, CBS, and NBC. He was one of the authors of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Cybersecurity Guide and received a Cyber Wingman Award from the Air Force for building out and developing their entire cybersecurity program a 2014 inductee into the InfoSec Hall of Fame and current host of the popular Cyber 9-11 podcast, Dr. Cole, thanks for stopping by Barcode. My, my pleasure. I tell you that when I hear that intro, I'm like, who is he referring to? It's like, <laughs> that, that guy sounds pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you started out, You, I mean, you actually started your career out as an accidental CIA hacker. Is that true? Yeah. So I, I, in the eighties, right. Uh, I, once again, don't hide anything. I'm 51. So I'm, I, I always go in and call myself OG, like the original gangster. My, oh, my yeah. youngest daughter reminds me all the time. OG stands for old guy, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I ignore that. So I'm in the eighties. I loved architecture and I wanted to major in architecture, but everyone was like, you got to go with computer science. That's where the future is. So I go to computer science and then a bunch of random events, I'm interviewing with the CIA on campus and everyone's telling me, go to the networking group, go to the networking group. And I'm like, hey, you only live once. So not knowing really what it was and what it meant, I went for this little tiny group called cybersecurity, started uh, asking a few questions of how do we know these systems are secure, which led to the answer, which is by testing, validating or breaking in which led me to going in and becoming a professional hacker for eight years, which sort of sent a trajectory for my career. I'd like to tell you, it was this really well thought out master plan. 
But what I tend to agree with in, in life, if you just sort of stay open, show up a lot and listen to those voices in your head, the, the path is sort of revealed to you. And now I look back going, yep, I perfectly executed on that the way I wanted to, right? I'm, I'm kidding here. But, but yeah, that took me on the path. And, and really the CIA taught me two things. One, offense is boring. And because you always get in. So that's when I switched to defense. And the second thing I learned from the CIA is I don't play well with others. I, I don't do well in bureaucracy. So I realized I'm an entrepreneur at heart. So from there, I've bought and sold various companies in cybersecurity, which let me be a chief scientist at Lockheed Martin, a CTO at McAfee, write some of the top selling courses for SANS, author eight books. And just but like I said, it's it's been an amazing amazing journey. And, and I sort of look back believing that everybody is put on this planet with a unique purpose. And I truly believe that my purpose of why I'm here is to make cyberspace safe, to end suffering in cyberspace, and really go in and teach people what it means to be secure and safe and to ultimately protect individuals, companies, and the country. Yeah, I, I like referring to you as an OG. So I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to you as the OG in awesome, cybersecurity. Awesome, I like it. I, I, I'll unbutton <laughs> and get my chains out, right? <laughs> there you go. So yeah, as as an OG and, and a leader in cyber, uh, you know, I'm sure there's been many times where you've had to help others understand the genuine th threats of cybersecurity attacks, whether that's to a business or whether that's to just someone that you know personally. Uh, and I'm just curious how you approach that. Is there a way to convey that importance that we all know uh, as being cybersecurity professionals as a one-to-one -to, -one to others outside of InfoSec? And, and if so, how do you do that? Yeah, to, to me, I love to use analogies. So, so the analogy that I always use is, what if I told you that I had a hotel room and it was filled with gold? It was filled with tons and tons of gold and you wanted to steal my gold. There's really only three things you would need. You would need to know what hotel I'm staying at. You would need to know the room and you would need to have some vulnerability or way to break into that room. If those three conditions existed, you could steal my gold. Well, guess what? Cybersecurity is no different. If you want to break into an organization, you need to know the target. And there's two targets, servers and clients. So let's start with servers. If you're going to want to break into my server and steal my information, it's just like the gold. You need to have the address of the server. You need to have the room number, which is known as a port number. And there needs to be a vulnerability to break into the system. Well, today, if you look at organizations, their vulnerabilities are they have servers accessible from the internet that are missing patches that contain critical data that's not properly encrypted. So if you want to stop today's current threat vectors, not what's going to happen in the future, but right now today, and you're talking about server-based attacks, there's only two rules you have to follow. Any system accessible from the internet must be fully patched. And any system that's accessible from the internet must never contain critical data. You follow those two rules and you're good to go. And then the other target are individuals, which has really been expanded because of COVID or the epidemic, where now you have so many people working from home. And that, that's one of my favorite questions I love asking organizations is, how many new offices did you open in 2020? 
And they all look at me like, Eric, you're crazy. We shut down offices. We closed offices, right? We, 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 we decreased the office space. We didn't open up any new offices. And then I go in and I, I say, how many employees are now working from home that previously weren't? And one of the recent clients said 12,000. So I said, okay, so you've opened up 12,000 new offices without any security, site reviews, or validation. And it's like, wait for it. And they go, I never thought about that. So now you have all these folks at home that really it comes down to phishing attacks with embedded links and attachments. So if you want to go in and stop individual target attacks, either go in and stop attachments and embedded links, or my favorite is use a separate computer. This is what I did when I set up Bill Gates systems. Now I gave him five because he's the magical Bill Gates. So if you're as rich as him, you can do five different computers, one for Microsoft, one for the foundation, one for investments, one for side businesses, and one for personal. However, for most of us mere mortals, you just need two. You have one computer, a Windows computer that I use for doing all my work. And then I have an iPad that I use for the two most dangerous apps on the planet, which is checking email and surfing the web. Now, you do that simple task. And now all of a sudden, even if I clicked on a link or opened an attachment on my iPad, the probability that it's actually for an iPad is low because 90% of attacks are Windows-based and there's no critical data. So if it gets compromised, I just rebuild it. So my approach to cybersecurity is let's come up with some fundamental rules and let's tell people, yes, you know, if we tell folks don't click on links, they're going to do it. So get an iPad and click away, right? And that's sort of how I always do security. Simple, basic rules that treat cybersecurity as a business enabler. I'll always tell you yes with a caveat. That's really interesting because having worked with so many different companies, I love that the rules are pretty simple. They're basic in the approach and they're highly effective based upon their basic nature. But a lot of organizations get so complex and get so big. And then you have siloed teams that don't talk to other siloed teams and new servers come on board and that are open to the internet and it messes a review or attack. What, what could companies do to rapidly adopt these basic concepts while really securing what they've put in the place for 10, 15, 20 years that's already out there? It's a great question. And to me, what a lot of it comes down to is really empowering the business units to think correctly about cybersecurity. Because the problem in most organizations, and we see this, are the vice presidents and managers and directors of the business units, they have all of the authority, but none of the responsibility. And we, I see this all the time where a business unit at a large company wants to go in and uh, hypothetically, Let's say you're a large oil pipeline company, right? And let's just let's just go historical and say Colonial Williamsburg, right? Is the is the name of it? And you have managers that say we want to connect the operational production network to the IT network. It's quicker, it's faster, it's easier. And you have the security team going, no. Right. Don't do it. Don't do it. And and because a lot of these folks in security are great people, but they're super technical, 
They can't explain the problem. Nobody understands what the real risk is because it's way too tactical. They do it. And then you have a major, major breach where then everybody points at the security person. So what I do when I do CISO or vCISO work with our clients is to me, cybersecurity is quite simple. It's about asking two questions. The first question you already ask, which is what is the value or benefit? So when you're going to go in and connect the operational network to the IT network, what is the value or benefit? Increased productivity. Great, let's do it. If we're going to set up a web server that's out of date and unpatched, what's the value and benefit? Increased customers. Great, let's do it. The problem is they're only asking one question. What I do is I go in and say, listen, as a security person, I will never tell you yes or no. To me, whether something is secure is not a yes or no answer. It depends on the second question, which is what is the risk or exposure? So I go in and I train people going, listen, before you make a decision, I just want you to do two things. What is the value and benefit? What is the risk and exposure? And is the benefit worth the risk or exposure? Because that's what business is about. Business is about taking risk, but educated risks that you're aware of. So to me, as long as that business person says, I know the value and I know the risk and exposure, and I'm willing to accept that risk and exposure, and they're fully aware of it, then go ahead. Now, the caveat is this. If I believe as a security officer that you're taking too much of a risk for the organization, then when I do my quarterly briefing to the board of directors, I'm going to let them know. I'm going to say, listen, Chris went in and he accepted this risk on behalf of the organization. I just want you all to be aware. I'm not doing it from a judgment saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying this was a big risk that Chris decided to take. And I just want everyone to be aware of it. Now, the board of directors can say we agree with Chris or we don't. And now we're getting vetting and validation. But now there's awareness that everyone knows what's going on and what's happening. So to me, with cybersecurity, it's not about getting technical. It's about getting high level and training people to think the way they should about value and benefit versus risk and exposure. And is that benefit worth the risk or exposure? I'm a risk taker. That's what I do. We get along too. People think I'm nuts. But what I love doing, my hobbies are base jumping, skydiving, because to me, life is meant to be lived. And you know something? If I don't make it, I don't make it. But I love the adrenaline rush. So yeah, I'm the same way. I'm all about taking risks. But here's the part. I'm fully aware of the risks I'm taking. And that's what the key is. Yeah. The risks are calculated and the, the, the failures or the dangers of that risk are mostly understood, or you've at least made the personal judgment that whatever's not understood, you feel comfortable enough that your skill set or the organization's skill set <laughs> is going to support you in a way that's not going to let you fail in a catastrophic manner. Exactly. And a great example of that is I had a buddy of mine, Steve, that he goes, dude, you got to take me base jumping. You got to take me base jumping. So I go, great. So we get up early. And with base jumping, you typically have to hike for four or five hours up the mountain. And then, so, so we get up super early and we get to the top of this mountain and it's beautiful. And I'm looking at Steve and he's getting real nervous. And he's like looking over the cliff and looking at stuff. And he's like, dude, 
could I die doing this? And I said, yes. I said, if you don't follow what I say, you could die. I said, but if you follow my instructions and you don't screw up, it can be relatively safe. Now you could still get hurt or injured, but yes, you can absolutely die. And he sort of thinks about it and goes, I don't know if I want to do this. Now, we ended up climbing back down the mountain. We didn't jump that day. Failure on my part because I assumed he knew the risk and he didn't. So now whenever I take anyone base jumping before we climb the mountain, I go, dude, you could die. Is that okay? And, and I make sure. And that to me is a great example because I feel that's what a lot of security people do is they're taking people up to the mountain, but they never explain the risk. They never tell the companies what the risks are. And that's why companies do stupid things because we never told them what the exposures were. So now I always joke with my team is I'm like, hey, did you tell them they could die? And my team knows the story. So, so that's the situation. Did you explain the risk to the executives in a language they understand? And to me, that's the simplicity of cybersecurity if you follow the rules. Yeah. And sometimes even reaching executives in certain organizations is challenging. So for CISOs that struggle to relay the importance to execs, what would you say is needed to convince them? of the risk involved with cyber attacks? The most important thing is we need to convince them or retrain them that we speak their language, that, that we speak English. I do a lot of roundtables with CEOs and I hear the same thing over and over again. Eric, I want to know about cybersecurity. The biggest concern as a CEO is cybersecurity. And the, the explanation is this. It's the one thing they don't understand and they can't control. A CEO looked at me and said, Eric, I understand the economy. I understand market. I understand competitive analysis. I understand what could happen. Even COVID, I understood that these things can happen. But cybersecurity is this unknown. It's this ghost in the darkness that I'm unaware of, and nobody will explain it to me in a language. And I said, well, did you talk to your security team? Yes, I don't speak English. So here's what happens. The CEO contacts the head of security and they say, I want to have a conversation on security. So what does a security person do? They spend three weeks putting together a 50 slide deck, showing them everything that security person would want to know about cybersecurity. They have all the false positives and negatives and charts and analytics and diagrams and all this great stuff. And they go in and after three minutes, the CEO is like, I don't know what language this person's speaking and they're on their phone and they're ignoring them because here's the problem. Most people were trained on an incorrect phrase, which was treat people the way you want to be treated. That's wrong. You treat people the way they want to be treated. So you're giving a presentation for you that you think is awesome. They don't get it. So I'll make it once again. My rules are real simple. When you talk to a CEO, they only care about four things. What could happen? What would be the cost if it happens? What is the likelihood of it happening? And how much do I have to pay to stop it from happening? That's all they care about. So I'll go in when I train up CISOs that are new, that are still too technical. And I'll be like, you get one slide. And I don't want to see any technical words. 
If you're saying false positive, if you're saying firewalls, if you're saying IDS, if you're saying packets, if you're saying route, they don't give, you know what? All they care about is what could happen in business terms. You could lose the business. You could lose 50% of your customers. What is going to be the cost? What is the likelihood of this happening? And what do you want to spend to fix it? And if you go in with that, not only will you be respected, not only will you have a seat at the table because you speak English, but I've never had a situation where I don't get the money I requested because I'm never going to go in and ask for stupid. If you go in and say, hey, there's this thing that could happen. And if it happens, it's going to cost 100K and there's a 10% chance of it happening. And I want 400K to remediate it. Stupid. No, if you do that, you're not going to get requested. Or what most security engineers do is they do this. There's some really bad stuff out there. I can't tell you how really bad it is, but it's really, really bad. And it's really, really bad. And you have to trust me. That's really, really bad. Can I have 500K? Who's going to give you the money, right? It, 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 now I'm over-exaggerating, but that's close to what we're doing. However, what if I come in and I tell you, listen, we, I, I use analogies again at your house. We get storms in Northern Virginia every three, three to four a month. And based on the current condition of your roof, it's 14 years old. There's a 90% chance that when we get heavy rain, it's going to destroy your roof. It's going to go into the attic and it's going to cost $100,000 worth of damage. You're going to have to replace your roof over the next year. Since I'm going to be in your neighborhood, I'll give you a discount and I'll do it for 15K. Who's going to say no to that? Right. It's common business, but, but that's the problem. We don't present both sides of the equation or we don't speak English and therefore executives shut down. I think that concept too, the way you tied in, not just an understanding of what the challenge is with your analogy of the house and the roof and not just the impact of it, but you also tied in a little bit more of a, the sales closing of, by the way, I'm in the area and I can do it at X percentage discounted rate. And you just, in theory, if, if you're communicating effectively and they're understanding your points of view, it should be a very simple conversation and it should be a simple yes or no. And from there you move on. Exactly. It's, it's basic communication. One of the things I've learned is whether it's in business or life or relationships or anything else, all problems are created and solved with communication. Now, well, once again, I'll go a little tangent. I've also, because I've been married 25 years, I'll also tell you that all communication problems are my fault. Like that, that, that's also a good one to, to, to learn there, right? I'll, I'll give you guys a little advice if, if you're thinking, of, or you are married, but, but all kidding aside, it's all about communication in a way that that person understands. And yes, whether you like it or not, if you want to be successful in life, you can't be afraid of sales. And, and you nailed it. So when, when I go into executives, I'll do the same thing. I'll be like, okay, listen, there's, there's a 90% chance you're going to get hit with ransomware. It's going to happen. And normally companies have to spend $400,000 to remediate, but you've already invested in Microsoft Office 365 and they have built in security measures that if you only spend 80K, you can actually reduce ransomware by 80%. Is that something you'd like to do? 
And, and the other thing that Mike, you brought up, that's really important. You can't be emotionally tied to the output. I don't care. If you want to take that risk, that's cool. I'm giving you the raw data. You're making a decision and I don't care one way or another. And that's the other thing. So many security people, they get so emotionally caught up that if they don't get the money, it's like somebody called them an idiot and they just get way too, who cares if you've presented the case, it is what it is and move on. That's a great concept. And I think it was Bill Gates who said something years ago. He kind of changed his tonality a little bit that said that as engineers, we should all know how to sell. Yep. It's the number one skill that we should be doing. And that ties in with the communication aspect of it, because I, I've worked with engineers who have moved up the ranks, you know, in, in an organization or who've moved up the ranks going from organization to organization, but they still get very heavy into the technical and the weeds instead of oversimplifying and just laying out a very simple use case. Here's the problem. Here's the potential solutions. Here's the potential cost. Let's, you know, like you said, I'm giving you nothing more than data and the expertise of my team and our organization. The decision ultimately is up to you as to how we best proceed. Yeah. And just playing off Bill Gates, one of my other favorite quotes from him is, if you believe that a decision is the right thing to do and the other person is not doing it, either you didn't give them proper data or maybe you're wrong. And, 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 and that's the key thing there is if you believe that I honestly believe the company should spend 200K on this and the executives aren't doing it, it means I either didn't present a strong enough case or I'm wrong and they shouldn't be doing it. And, and if we have that mindset, once again, it changes how we go into that meeting. In regards to a CISO's technical aptitude, obviously it would give them an edge. Although, would you consider it a qualification for that position? Yeah, to, to be a world-class CISO, you need to be a translator. You need to translate between two languages. So you need to know business and you need to know technical. So, so a great example is you need to sit down with your technical team and have a technical discussion of the problem, the issues, what's happening. And then you need to go in and translate it into business and present it to the executives from a benefit or impact to the business. So you need to have both. Now, if you look at any really good translators, you're always going to have one language that you're a little more comfortable in or that you speak a little better. And I find with most CISOs, that's usually technical. Most of the world-class CISOs start off with four to five years in cybersecurity. They then learn the business and they become that CISO. Now, you could do the opposite. You can be very strong in business and learn cyber, but you do need to know both. Here's the problem, though, is you need to know both and switch your role. What happens is in most, not all, I got to be careful because people always misquote me. You said all. No, I didn't. I said most people that have been in cybersecurity for 10 or 12 years are so comfortable in technical because you've done it for 10 or 12 years and that's what you know and that's what you love. And you default to that without even realizing it. And then you assume that a CISO is a technical position. And that's when you fail. That's when you're not good. A CISO is not a technical position. You need to have some technical knowledge and some business knowledge to be successful, but it's a strategic 
translating position. It's not technical. And that's what I think the big problem is, is in many companies, it's viewed, I work for you for 10 or 12 years. I am a world-class security engineer. Therefore, give me the title of CISO because I'm cool. And they continue to be a world-class security engineer. And the executives don't trust them, understand, or listen to them. And that's devastating. So you can be world-class security engineer, but if you want to be a CISO, you got to switch gears. You got to put on a different hat and be strategic. And if you're not willing to do that, you will not be successful. How do you gain that business experience if you are a veteran engineer or someone that's more technical and needs that strategic or business perspective? Excellent question. And that's, that's what a lot of folks miss. So you can't learn it. You can. So a couple of ways. One is reading. I mean, to, to me, books are probably the most amazing thing on the planet. Now, you, you can take somebody like a Richard Branson and for $20, get his knowledge. I, I, I'll pay $200,000 right, to learn. So, so to me, there's some really good business books out there like Blue Ocean Strategy is a great book. Play Bigger is a great book. And then Principles by Ray Dalio. To me, if you want to be a CISO, those three books you should read every single year. I, I, I read them whenever I'm struggling with my business. I'll pull out one of those books and just say, okay, what am I missing? What do I need to adjust? What do I need to tune? And, and so it's, uh, it's Blue Ocean Strategy, Play Bigger and Principles uh, by Ray Dalio. Th those are core books. So that's one way. Second, and this is the one that I think is the most valuable that people are afraid of, ask for help. Go in and ask the CFO at your current company. Go listen. I know we have a, a world-class CISO. I'm not trying to take their job. I would like to be a CISO or a deputy CISO here or somewhere else, and I'd like to understand business. Would you be willing to spend 45 minutes once a month just reviewing balance sheets and profit and loss statements with me? Now, the initial response of most people is they're not going to do that. Why would they help me? Right? You have this view that people are evil, but I'll tell you, most people got to where they are because other people help them. So if you ask for help, you'd be amazed. I go in and I've never had somebody report back that this failed. I said, I want you to go out on LinkedIn and identify a hundred CFOs that work at companies you would like to be a CISO at. And I want you to blindly, you, you don't know them. I just want you to reach out and say, hey, I'm Eric. I admire what you've accomplished as a CFO. I would like to be a CISO at a company like yours one day. I was wondering if you'd have a 45-minute conversation to give me some advice. Now, your goal is to get one yes. If you ask 100 people for help, I'm pretty sure you're going to get one yes. If you don't, then it means one of two things. Either you're an a-hole or you're really good at attracting a-hole, right? I, I'm kidding you, but the point is I've never, ever had a situation where after 10 or 12 people, they don't say no. People want to help, but you have to be willing to ask for help. Now, when you achieve that level of power, there's also negativity that comes along with that. One, from others that are envious and just want to hate on you. And two, from those aspiring to reach that level, although aren't getting the proper guidance they need from those already at the top. 
in order to help define the next wave of leaders, what would your advice be to them to help them get through that barrier? Yeah. So, so, so there's two great things in there. So, so the first one is when you're successful and you do well, there's going to be haters. And, and, and I guess my response to that is good. And who cares? Mm -hmm. So, 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 so what if I, if I believe that I'm making a difference and I'm helping folks and other people don't like what I'm saying, who cares? If you're, if you're going to live your life worrying about what other people think, then you're not going to be very successful. Right? Every successful person has a long list of haters. So, so to me, you got to change the mentality. And the way I overcame it was, and I'll be honest with you, I, I was that person when I started putting myself out there and doing leadership and social media and all that, I would put a video out and I would get two or 300 people. This was awesome. This was great. This was so, so insightful. This changed my life. And now you think somebody saying you changed their life would be important? Not me. The one person that was like, you look like an idiot and you're stupid and you don't know anything and you shouldn't do this anymore. Uh, that was the person that would bother me. And like to a point of like obsession. And I would like try to reply back going, but why don't you like me? Everyone. Like, you know, and, and, and then finally at one point, I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? Right. So now I've switched it. If I put out a video and I don't get at least five haters, like that say something negative, I'm like, okay, I didn't push the envelope because if I'm not pissing some people off, I'm not making a big enough difference in the world. If I'm saying stuff that everybody on the planet agrees with, I'm not saying anything new or revolutionary. And if I want to change cyberspace, I need to do that. So I made it a game where now, like with my team, they're like, dude, you got 17 haters. Yeah. You know, so, so like, like embrace it and play it to your strength on that front. And then the other piece is to me, you're never going to get to the top without people helping you. So when you get there, reach down and help others. Right? I'm very big on mentoring, uh, but my team always is like, Eric, you get paid significant amount of money to do keynotes, yet I will go to high schools and churches and give free keynotes. And they're like, why do you do that? I'm like, because I want to help the next generation. There were people who came to, to my high school and presented that changed my life. And I want to do the same thing. So we need to also remember that, hey, people are going to help you, but you need to help others. And I, I think it's that balance of, of having a filter that the people that just don't like you, who cares? And the people that do like you, help them out and build that tribe. And that's really, to me, what success is all about is not making a lot of money, but making a difference. I want to follow up on one thing you said about the book suggestions. Ray Dalio's book is, is an amazing book. I, I just finished Principles. I bought the child version of Principles, which is pretty picture. I, I, saw, I, I didn't buy that, but I saw he did that. I bought that one because the other book's like 600 pages. That's, yeah. a, that's a deep book. However, he also has an app now that you can download on your phone where you get daily principles, daily information, coaching. Cool. So I would, if you have not experienced the app, I would highly recommend it. Oh, I'll, de I'll definitely do that. And yeah, yeah well, one thing to all the listeners out there is the book principles, you definitely want to buy the hard copy 
You don't want to do Kindle because it's it's structured where he has individual principles with sub theories behind it. And it just doesn't read well on a Kindle. The other books you can do Kindle, but that one, it's 600 pages. Don't get overwhelmed. Right. My, my, my rule that I do is an hour a day you read. And if you don't think you can read an hour a day, send me your schedule. You don't need to play Madden for three hours. You don't need to watch Game of Thrones. Trust me, everybody has an hour that they can read. And here's what I learned. Blue Ocean Strategy. That's going to take you about eight hours, eight to nine hours. Let's call it 10 if you're slow. Play Bigger will take you about seven hours. Ray Dalio's book, Principles, will probably take you about 20, 25 hours. Add it up. 45 days. So I'm going to give everyone listening, and this is uh, the people I coach, I give them a 45-day trial. Not tomorrow, not in a week. Don't give me excuses. Today, whenever you're listening to this today, you can get a Kindle edition. I want you to start reading an hour and commit to that for 45 days, just 45 days. Read all three books in 45 days, see if your life changed, and then determine whether that's a habit you want to keep or not. So let's add one more book to that list. Cyber Crisis, protecting your business from real threats in the virtual world. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your book and what our listeners can learn from it? Awesome. So, so my, my whole career and life is about solving problems. And the big problem that I'm solving is why do organizations get compromised when it's straightforward ways to fix it? So if you go back to 2000, I felt that the problem was you didn't have enough technical people. You didn't have enough people that understood the technology. So I solved the problem. I wrote a book, Hackers Beware, and I created one of the best-selling courses, Security Essentials. Then I did that for 15 years, building up a huge cadre of people with technical knowledge. Then about five years ago, I said, okay, the problem now is not that we don't have technical people, but individuals. Parents, teachers, doctors, lawyers don't understand that they're a target and cybersecurity is their responsibility. So I looked for a solution. One didn't exist. So I wrote online danger. Then about two years ago, I said, wait, wait, wait. The real problem is two things. One, executives don't understand cyber. So I said, I want to have a business book that doesn't have any technical language written purely in business language and money. That's easy to read with examples and practical things you can do to protect a business for executives that you can read in two to three hours. I looked, it didn't exist. So I went in and I created Cyber Crisis. The second problem to me was you didn't have chief information security officers that understood business. Chief information security officers were too technical. So we needed a certification class that somebody with three to five years experience could go in and become a CISO, a world-class CISO. So I looked for training, didn't exist. So I built it. So, so those are my two big pitches right now. If you go to secure-anchor.com slash cybercrisis, that's the book for executives. If you go to secure-anchor.com slash CISO, that's my CISO cert. And those are the two big problems I'm working on right now to try to raise awareness with executives and get strategic thinkers within the business. And I believe if we can solve those, then we can start making a real difference in protecting and securing our businesses and our infrastructure. So 
I know you probably have a couple of different thoughts. I would eventually like to get to a little bit about your childhood and your background. What what's drawn you to to the security world? I know you mentioned you had some folks in in high school that kind of came and did some speaking engagements. I'm sure somebody from the agency or, or, or another four letter agency has kind of gotten to you in the back of your head. But what like for me, I got into technology because I had a technology class in school and it was old computers with floppy disks. And I was just drawn to it. And I've been in and around technology my entire life. It's a passion. How did that work for you? You, you, you might think I'm kidding, but there actually is some seriousness to this answer. So when I was a kid, I loved taking things apart. Like my mom joked when I was four or five years old, she couldn't leave me in the room because I would take the lamp apart. I would take the telephone apart. I, I just was always fascinated with how things worked and how, how things operate in a function. So that's sort of data point one. Data point two, I believe that for some reason, my mom didn't like me because she would dress me in plaid and brown to school. So I was bullied a lot. Uh, I, I was that geeky. I was that kid in the class picture. Like you'd look at the class picture and you'd be like, did that mom hate that kid? Right. Cause like every other kid looked normal and you're there with a brown tie and your hair. I mean, so it was just like, so I, I, I was picked on and bullied a lot. So I was drawn to computers because when I went to the computer lab, it was a bunch of geeks and I never got beat up. I, I, I never, nobody tried to light me on fire. Nobody tried to, to steal my books or, or make fun of me. It was other weird people like me that worked well. So that drew me to the computers where, hey, this is a world where I can operate and do what I want. And then because of the bullying aspect, I really don't like it when people pick on kids are unfair or others. And to me, now that you start seeing all the cyberbullying and cyber abuse, and I mean, it's, it's to me horrific. I mean, when I, when I was growing up, if you were bullied, you sort of you, you dealt with it. It wasn't that bad because when I went home, it went away. It wasn't persistent. So I had to deal with it for four hours and a few classes. And then the other 20 hours of the day, I was with friends and it was okay. However, with cyberbullying, it's 24-7. I mean, these kids are harassed around, from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. And you can't expect kids to handle that. So, I mean, kids taking their lie. I mean, it's just, to me, it's just the suffering in cyberspace is unbearable just seeing what I went through. So, I guess it's sort of the perfect storm of fascinated with how things worked love solving impossible problems, loving computers, and just not liking people that are bullied or suffered. To me, that sort of drew me to cybersecurity and my current mission now of really making cyberspace safe and ending that suffering. And to me, the way I'm doing that is by raising awareness, getting the core people to understand what the issues are, so then we can start to train, teach, and start making changes across society. It's a great answer. I love it. You seem, I don't want to misspeak, and if we need to cut any of this out, great, but you seem to be a very high energy person. <laughs> and I say that because I'm very high energy myself. Yeah. And in the corporate world, sometimes that's a, a big challenge, right? Being very high energy, being very, uh, you process very fast. And in the corporate setting, doesn't always doesn't always match up too well. Have you found a way to 
successfully marriage your your positive high energy and and can do attitude in the corporate setting where you know it's a little bit more people in shirt and ties who I don't, I don't know you you know what the corporate world yeah. looks like a lot better than I. See, see I, I'm laughing because this is where my personality is going to come out. My initial answer to you is going to be, I do drugs, but, but, that, that, but, but that, I'm kidding here. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now, so a couple of things is one is you have to be you, but you also have to recognize that if you can't communicate to other people at their level, you're going to be ineffective. So I'm, I'm always known of being a little more high energy than most, but, but I also go in and know my audience and I'll do things to sort of tone that down a little bit. Like, like a great example of that is I do expert witness. So I, I'm in courtrooms and high profile cases. Now I'm a joker. I have fun. And, and that doesn't go over well in the court. So, I mean, if I showed up like on this, on this thing, I don't think the judge would, would know how to handle it, but I'll still go in and, and have a little bit of my personality come out. But what I keep telling myself is, what is the goal and objective? But my goal and objective is to educate, in that case, the jury on what I want them to do. So what I do is, because my brain's always going, is when I'm asked the questions, I'm thinking, okay, if I can only get one point across to the juror and answer this question, what would it be? And now I give myself something to do so the silliness doesn't pop up, right? And, and the quirkiness doesn't because I, I'm now sort of thinking of that component of it or I turn it into a game. I say, okay, this is the ultimate chess match. And if I want to win, yeah, I can be silly and I can move my king and then I'm going to lose. So it, it, it's sort of just put, putting that perspective in place of what is my objective? What is my goal? And what is the most important and powerful thing? that I can say to get it across to the jury. And then in uh, boardrooms, my trick is this. Before I say anything, I always need to ask three questions. So that's my first rule. My second rule in the boardroom is I'm only allowed to speak. And this is my rule, nobody else's. I'm only allowed to speak a maximum of once every five minutes, which means if I have to ask three questions before I give a response and I can only say one thing, that means I can only say one thing every 20 minutes because question one is first five minutes, question two is second five. So it's going to take 15 minutes to get the questions out. And then finally I'll give my response. So you're not going to get my opinion or my feedback until at least 20 minutes into the meeting. But here's what I found. And, and, and it's something I just realized a couple months ago. When I'm in board meetings and you have all these big egos and smart people and executives, and they're all talking and talking and, and really nothing. But when it gets to the point of my 20 minutes where I go in and say, I, I like to give some feedback if appropriate. And they all look because I don't talk that much. And everybody stops and listens. And nobody's talking over me. Nobody's arguing. And somebody came up to me at one of the meetings and go, Eric, I don't know if you do this deliberately or you realize you do it. And of course, I, I try to play down. Oh, no, what are you talking about? Right? And, 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 they're, and they're like, 
but, but when you actually, you don't speak a lot, but when you actually speak, it's important, it's critical, it's aligned, and everybody listens to what you say. So to me, that's sort of my trick. Now, I want to talk a lot, so I take crazy notes. Like I'll, I'll sometimes, in a one or two hour board meeting, I'll fill up because what you have to realize is you got to give yourself an outlet. If I just tell myself, listen, you can't talk, and I just have to sit there and try to, you're going to go nuts. So I talk a lot, it's just on paper. And I, I'm doing a lot on paper. I'm doing that. I'm flipping through, which means when I actually get ready to talk, I have five pages of material I can draw on, and I'm going to pick out one of the one or two best methods for doing that. So to me, it's all about saying, what do I need to do in that environment to be successful? Who am I? And then not try to pretend to be somebody else, but create rules and scenarios that allow you to operate in a successful manner, but still be you. That's great feedback. And it really leads towards when you do speak, you're speaking from a place of authority, from a place of being informed because you've spread out your questions over the 20 minutes. And I like the taking the notes because I'm very similar, right? When I'm in meetings, I'm constantly typing away or writing notes and kind of having little arguments with myself. Like if I want to bring this thought up later, how can I, how can I circumvent what somebody else is going to say on paper before I open my mouth? doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, I get a little over too excited, but <laughs> you know, the, the, the more at-bats you have, the more you can fine tune your, your process and, and your, your verbiage to executives and non-executives alike. And, and that's a big thing is put yourself out there. You, you, you're going to have some meetings where you're good and some meetings where you're bad. And sort of my favorite example is I grew up in, uh, in New York, so Yankees, and I was a Reggie Jackson fan. And Reggie Jackson, uh, at the time, broke the home run record. He, he, like in his career, I think it was 1,400 home runs. That's what he's known for. Most people don't realize he also holds the record for the most strikeouts. He struck out over 3,200 times, but if all you did was strike out and you never hit the home runs, you'd be known as the strikeout person, but it's always your greatest component. So to him, even though he struck out a lot because he swung the bat more than anyone else, you know him for what the results are. So that, that, that's what I always tell myself. If I make a mistake or I screw up, I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm like, you know something? There's no possible way you're going to hit home runs without striking out. It's impossible. You're not going to get up to bat and hit a home run every time. It can't happen. It's just not mathematically possible. So I'm like, cool. One, one up back closer to a home run, right? The more strikeouts I have, I'm getting closer, right? I, you, you make the game out of it, but you just sort of tell yourself. And that's, I stole that from Reggie Jackson because I love that in an interview. They go, they go, well, at one point in your career, you struck out like four games in a row. And he's like, yeah, isn't that awesome? And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, I knew that I was closer to the home run because no one's going to strike. And, and it's just the mentality that you set up is you create a positive environment for everything as opposed to a negative. I love it. So, yeah, where does MJ rank on the number of missed shots? You know, he's got to be up there. Yeah. And, and the other thing with them, though, that I love, and, and we'll use uh, MJ Michael Jordan there, is everyone looks at him as, you know, I mean, he was blessed with this unbelievable ability. And 
yeah, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, right? He, he, he clearly has height and arm and, and a couple of factors there. But here's what everyone misses about him. When he was playing for the Bulls, he would show up to practice two hours before everyone else. And when practice ended, he would stay an hour afterwards. And on games, after the game, he would typically be back on the court one or two in the morning, just practicing and adjusting what went wrong. So yes, maybe or maybe not, he was given talent that others didn't have. But the reason why he's the greatest is because he worked harder than anybody else on the court. And to me, that's the messaging that I think everybody misses when they look at these amazing athletes and whether it's movie stars, rock stars, professional athletes, what they miss is if you're going to be the greatest, it doesn't matter your talent. If you're not the hardest working person out there, you are not going to be the greatest. And to me, that's the thing I always joke with everyone is you might be better than me, smarter than me, than faster than me, but you will not outwork me. And everyone at the gym knows if you get on the treadmill next to me, I don't care meetings. And you can ask my assistant, I've missed meetings. If you get on the treadmill next to me, I'm going to go faster than you and you're going to get off before me or I'm going to get taken to the hospital. But you will not outwork. And, and people like get on and they test it out. And they're looking at me and I'm looking at them and 45 minutes and they're like, are you going to get off? I'm like, not until you. And they're like, don't you have a meeting? So I'm like, I don't give a crap. I am not going to let you beat me. And, and, and I think, to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a weakness if it's not controlled, right? Because it's a little obsessive. But, but the point is, you got to remember that the greatest people out there that achieve what they want work harder than anybody else. And I think that is often missed where they think that MJ was this lazy bum. He was a competitive, aggressive person. So if you want to achieve your goals, you're going to have to have talent. But get up earlier, stay later, and outwork everyone else in your office. If you're not the first person in and the last person to leave, your probabilities of success are a lot lower than anybody else. Kind of follows that old saying, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And having that competitive nature in and outside of work. Like I, I was trying to motivate Chris the other day, telling him about my crazy runs. And I did six 5Ks in a day. And most of it was with a 20-pound weighted vest. just. Because nice. because I want to make sure that I have that mental mindset of when you hit those barriers, whether it's in a boardroom or you're working late or you have to give up the weekend because of a ransomware attack, you're good to go because you've built that resilience and that mental toughness that it doesn't matter what happens. You can adapt, improvise, adapt, and overcome to any challenge as long as you, you keep this going. Yeah. Yeah. Life, cybersecurity, and everything is a mind game. It's it, 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 this is what's going to either allow you to be successful or screw you up. It does. This doesn't matter. Right. And and I, I don't want to pick on any athletes, but I mean, we've all seen them in different sports where they're amazing top of their game and they just can't control their mind and they just collapse. And, and to me, because it's such a mental game, you see this in golf. You, you see these guys that come out there and win a couple tournaments for a couple of years and they're like, oh, they're going to be the next Jack Nicholas. And in five or six years, they just burn their life down because they just, they, they have the right physical, but they just can't manage this. So my bartender is yelling last call. So do you have time for one more? Let's do it, man. <laughs> All right. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be 
And what would your signature drink be called? Remember we did the, the, the weirdness factor. So the, 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 now I, I wasn't sure which is which, but I think the name of the bar would be Hack Naked. And I think the signature drink would be Backdoor. <laughs> Sorry, man. I, you, you, I'm going to be honest with you. So. I love, I love it, it, man. Yeah. I love it. Great. Yeah. But, but, but just so you know, Remote Trojan was up there somewhere, but I just, I, I just, that, 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 that might be the happy hour special. That might be the, the, the name we call the nacho dish or something. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm there. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we had a, a great conversation. Everyone go out and check out cyber crisis. When is that getting released, Eric? Uh, that gets released June 1st. So I just yesterday got my official copies because when they mail them to the bookstore, they mail them to the author. So it, it's real, but make sure you order it June 1st. You'll get it in your mailbox. I'm on it, Eric. Well, listen, take care. Be safe. Thank you, guys. This was awesome. And thank you guys for being the best, man. Let's catch up soon. Absolutely, Eric. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Barco patrons. If you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and visit our Patreon site, patreon.com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.